0: Well, this morning, um, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. We're going to be looking at Luke 16, beginning with verse 14, and working through verse 17 together today. And as you're turning there, um, as we're going through verse by verse through Luke, it's important as we are looking at the Scriptures, to notice not only what does the Lord say, but we're given windows into how do people respond. In particular, we see this morning how the Pharisees respond to Jesus' word, not just to the gospel message, but to its application and implications When Jesus gives instructions on the kingdom and on living in the kingdom, some respond joyfully and some, as we see today, despise his message. And that is revealing. It ought to be revealing in our own hearts as well. Last week we looked at some of Jesus' teaching on money, concerning money, and today we see how the Pharisees respond to that. So let's stand together. Let me read beginning with verse 14, Luke chapter 16, verses 14 through 17. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Let me pray. Let me pray. Father, your word is truth. We love you and we ask you, Lord, to bless this time, please. For your glory, not ours, Lord, we truly want Christ to be exalted in this time. So please help. Help through the preaching of your word. Help through the receiving of your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Well, Jesus in the previous text has taught the parable of the dishonest manager, the shrewd manager. And in that, he is revealing that just as the shrewd manager used his master's resources to secure his earthly future... We, as believers, followers of Jesus Christ, ought to be using our master's resources to secure our eternal reward. He ends with this statement in verse 13 No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You cannot serve God in money. In verse 1, we saw that as he is giving this parable, as he's teaching this parable, his primary audience there is his disciples. But that didn't keep the Pharisees from listening in. They often did, looking for ways to criticize or to catch him and at some point to be able to arrest him. And certainly that's the case here. They're listening in. And it tells us that as they're listening in, the Pharisees are not happy with Jesus' teaching. They didn't like what they heard. Their pride is pricked. Notice what Luke says about them in verse 14. The Pharisees who were lovers of money. They were lovers of money. Pharisees were motivated by greed and covetousness. We want to pay attention to this. The Pharisees were not happy about Jesus' teaching. They were striving after two gods. They were greedy. They were trying to serve God and money. And in trying to do that, as Jesus teaches the truth, they are not happy with it. Leon Morris writes this, Those who are covetous like to disguise their sin. They see their money as evidence of the blessing of God on their activities and thus of their righteousness. This was certainly the Pharisees. And we see it today. Those who follow Jesus because of the material blessing that they believe will come to them because they follow Jesus should be warned by this text, but also as you consider Judas. Greed and covetousness is what motivated Judas to follow Jesus. Peter, in writing in 2 Peter 2-3 concerning false teachers, he warns Concerning the false teachers this way, in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. That was the Pharisees. They were motivated by greed, not by God's glory. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, were lovers of money. That's what Luke says here. The Pharisees were lovers of money, greedy, covetous men. And this is more dangerous than we let on. This is one of those sins that we tend to want to overlook covetousness. It's not as bad as murder, it's not as bad as whatever else we might list. But this is not an excusable sin. Paul writes in Colossians 3 5 and 6 Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. What does Paul say? Covetousness is idolatry. And as idolaters, the Pharisees were not happy. They couldn't receive Jesus' teaching with joy. Jesus' teaching was in conflict with their life, with the way they were living. It was conflicting with their idol, which was money. And so their response was, Luke tells us, to ridicule him. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, they heard these things and they ridiculed Jesus. Verse 15 goes on. And he said to them, Jesus said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men. But God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Jesus here is contrasting outward justification. Justification before people. With the state of the heart. The Pharisees were seeking outward justification. Justifying themselves or seeking justification from other people. Approval from men. For people to give their yes to what they were doing. But this will do nothing. This justification amounts to nothing for us. And Jesus is warning them of this. God knows the heart. He knows what is in our hearts. And that is a frightening thought for lovers of money. And Jesus here in verse 15 is shining a light on them as hypocrites. It's as if he's saying to them, On the inside, you are the opposite of what you want people to think you are. Their religion was a sham. They were imposters. They were fakes. Jesus says, What men see in you and admire in you, what you're striving after, the approval that you're trying to get from people in your religiosity, God hates that. It's an abomination to him. What is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. They tried. They tried to pass themselves off as holy men living in harmony with God. But Christ is not exalted where the love of money is. And it was impossible. Even as hard as they tried to, to pass themselves off as these people living in harmony with God. It was impossible. As lovers of money, that was impossible. That's what Jesus says. You cannot. You cannot serve God and money. You cannot Be in harmony with God as you have money as your idol, your hope, your satisfaction. It's important for us to understand what Jesus says here. When he looks at them and says to them, you are those who justify yourselves. You're seeking to justify yourselves before God. You're seeking to justify yourselves before men. You're seeking justification from men justification comes from god not man justification from god is the only justification that will matter if i'm justified in my own eyes and in the eyes of every single person who hears me preach but not in the eyes of god it means nothing i'm lost Self-justification or justification before men seeks to make oneself acceptable to God on the basis of what we do or what others see. Of what's on the outside, earning salvation through good works, maintaining certain moral and legal standards. Performing a, a certain amount of, of uh, religious expectations. If we can do the right things, if we can attend enough services, then God will let us in. But that is not where and how justification comes. And that's not to say that the religious leaders were not zealous. Did the Pharisees have zeal? Absolutely, they had zeal. In fact, Paul writes in Romans 10, verse 2, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Zeal is there. (laughs) Effort is there. Gumption is there. It's not that there's a lack of zeal. In fact, so often, those who are seeking to be justified before men are are more zealous than those of us who have found the grace of Christ and, and and been saved and justified by God than we are, and how we ought to be outshine, out, how, how we ought to outshine their zeal, because we know grace, we know what it means to be justified. They had zeal. But when this zeal is not aligned with knowledge of the truth, it is useless. That's what Paul's saying there. I bear them witness they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4 says this, The righteous shall live by his faith. Paul, writing to the Galatians in Galatians 3.11, quoting this verse from Habakkuk, says this, Now it is evident... That no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. We're not justified by works. We're not justified by what we do. We're not justified by other people. And so how are we justified? Not by works that we accomplish, but by faith in the work of Jesus Christ. Romans 3:23 and 24 for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Christ's work on the cross redeeming man. That is the only work that will work for justification. That is the only hope of justification. Nothing I do, nothing you do, but what Christ has done. Romans 4, verse 5, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Romans 5, 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And what does God's justification accomplish? Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. His justification accomplishes all. If you are trusting in anything else for justification like the Pharisees were, then repent. Turn to God through Christ Jesus. It goes on in verse 16, Jesus continues, the law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. Until John the Baptist comes on the scene preaching repentance, revelation from that up to that point, was law and prophets. Hebrews 1, in former days God spoke to us through the prophets, but here in these last days he has spoken to us through his son, Jesus. Until John. The law and the prophets were until John. But since then, Jesus says, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. and It is good news news. The law and the prophets are fulfilled. They fulfilled their purpose. All of the law and the prophets pointing ahead toward Jesus. John comes on the scene. Remember what he preaches, what he proclaims. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The fulfillment of the law and the prophets are here. You remember when you uh, will get there in, in several months, but Luke 22, on the road to Emmaus, as Jesus walks with these people and goes through all of the law and the prophets, pointing to what? Himself. They all pointed to Jesus, and during that time, time of the law and the prophets, the people are waiting and they're anticipating. But when Christ appeared, when He came, good news, gospel came with him with His appearing. And since then Jesus says, "Good news of the kingdom of God is preached. The kingdom of God is life with God under the rule of our King Jesus. The kingdom of God is preached. This is good news. Christ is now present. Anticipation, longing has become present reality. The Old Testament is time of promise. New Testament, and now is time of presence. Law fulfilled in Christ. And Jesus says, everyone forces his way into it. Now, what does that mean? With the good news of the gospel being preached, people are pressing into the kingdom. And what does that look like? They're pressing in with the greatest earnestness and self-denial and determination. What is Jesus' call? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, self-denial. And take up his cross and follow me. But that's not a, a casual thing. That's not someone seeing and hearing the good news of Jesus Christ and then just thinking, well, you know, that sounds pretty good. No, Jesus says, now that the good news of the kingdom of God is proclaimed, people are pressing in. It's like what he says in Luke chapter 13, verse 24. Strive to enter through the narrow door. Strive. That is what people are doing, Jesus says. This is what people began to do as they heard the gospel of the kingdom of God preached. Paul writes in Philippians 2, 12 and 13, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So where does the energy come from to force or press into the kingdom? Is that from raw exertion? From manly works? No, it is grace-empowered striving. Strive to enter. The good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. As I was considering this verse this week, I was reminded of a video that was across the news about three months ago now. You remember the crisis with ISIS as it, as it began. And in northern Iraq, the Yazidi people were fleeing from their homes. And how many thousands of them were, were captive in the mountains in northern Iraq? No food, no way to survive. They're there with their families Television coverage showing these people just trying to get to somewhere, but unable to go really anywhere because of the danger. And northern Iraqis began to fly in on a helicopter supplies, dropping uh, water and food and, and things to help them survive. And they have video of this helicopter coming in. Maybe you've seen it. And as they're dropping these supplies and anticipation is building, the the helicopter lands. And what happens when the helicopter lands? These Yazidi people look and they see this is our only hope. We are going to die. This is our hope. And so they begin to run towards the helicopter. And literally, they're throwing their children into the helicopter. This door is open. And they're climbing into this helicopter until it cannot fit any more. That's the picture that Jesus is giving here of the kingdom of God. The an- time of anticipation has ended. Jesus is now on the scene. He's come and the gospel is being proclaimed. And people are hearing and seeing this is the hope we have waited for. This is our only hope. And they're not just kind of kicking around and wandering around and, and just wondering, what should I really do with this? What should I do with this good news? They're running. They're running. They're forcing their way into the kingdom of God because they see it as one thing. The good news of salvation. Their only hope. So often in our culture we see it otherwise. So many other idols. So many other things. So many other desires that we contemplate over. And do I want to Do I want to give myself to being a church person or not? Jesus says that's not what it looks like at all. When people are awakened to the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God, they come running, forcing into the kingdom, striving to enter through the narrow door. That's a picture of what Jesus is referring to here. Forcing their way in through self-denial, through determination, through faith, through earnestness. He goes on in verse 17. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. You may read verse 16 and think, well, I guess the law is over and done. No need anymore. Just by all New Testaments, and we don't have to bother reading that. We don't have to... And Jesus says, no, 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 no that's, not, that's not the case. Jesus assures his hearers that it doesn't lack fulfillment. In fact, the law outlasts heaven and earth. The law will be fulfilled down to the minutest particle you think about this. Jesus says it would be easier for heaven and earth to cease to exist than for one little dot. That refers to one little stroke of a of a mark in the Hebrew alphabet. It would be the kind of like even on a smaller scale than for us. But if you take the letter F and E and how one little mark makes a difference between an e and an f in the same way in the hebrew alphabet the tiniest mark jesus is saying it would be easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for the tiniest stroke of my law to be void to be empty of authority Jesus says in Matthew 5, 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And this makes the believer all the more eager to obey him. Here's the point that Jesus is making. If these Pharisees truly believed that all of God's promises would be fulfilled... They would have recognized their fulfillment in Christ, and therefore they would not have rejected and ridiculed him. Jesus says, I've come to fulfill the law. I haven't come to set aside the law. I haven't come to go around the law. I am the fulfillment of the law. And their rejection of Jesus is a rejection of the law and the prophets. Consider his words there. Not one dot. Not one stroke will pass away. And so how do we respond? How can we think through this and how ought, to, how ought we to respond to Jesus' words here? I want to address that in two categories because it all depends on where your justification is coming from. If your justification comes from yourself or from other people, let me encourage you The preaching of the kingdom of God is good news. Christ has come. No more sacrifices. He is the sacrifice. He lived the perfect life that no person ever in the Old Testament or New Testament today can live. He is our righteousness. And as a righteous, holy, spotless Lamb, He laid down His life. He died to suffer God's wrath for our sins. That is good news and if to this point you've resisted submitting your life to Jesus if you've ridiculed him like the Pharisees you've been a lover of money or a lover of any other thing than him like the Pharisees you've sought to defend your personal kingdom maybe even in the name of religion then repent that word repentance means to, to do a, a 180, to turn away from what you are going after and turn towards Jesus. Repent. I want you to see what so many have seen, what Jesus is talking about here, that when people realize how great a king Jesus is and how good the gospel of Jesus is, when they really see that, they press in. They force their way in. They want nothing more than to know this Jesus. So I encourage you to trust in him. Those who have come to terms with who he is, with the gospel, they don't just casually respond. They're pressing in. They're forcing in. Luke 9, 23, Jesus says, if anyone is to come after me, let him deny himself. And so I'd encourage you Consider the gospel of Jesus and deny yourself. Stop living for your kingdom and seek him. Take up your cross, Jesus says. Be willing to see your life laid down for him. And follow him. How do you follow Jesus? Listen to him. Read the words that he's given to us. Such an incredible statement. It is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. You consider that. Of all the other things that you have in this world, this is trustworthy. This is God's word. My wife loves me, but I fail her Daily I am not faithful until heaven and Earth passes away. I am human, I am a sinner. I fail her daily. We have something, though. We have something that has been given to us that does not and will not ever fail. You can read his word and know who this one is. This God who would send his son, Jesus, God in the flesh to this earth. You can know who he is. And so following him means learning and listening to him. And then obeying him. God's word will never fail. So set your hope on him and and read his word and then obey it. Follow him. Do as he has done. But ultimately, our hope of that is him. And so I encourage you, surrender your life to him. Find new life in Jesus. If you want to pray with someone or talk to someone, Joey and Terrence Jones will be in the prayer room as we sing But for those of us here who find our justification from God, you know God. I would ask you, are you truly depending on and trusting in Him and even treasuring His word? You think about what the gospel says about God. The God to whom all things belong spoke all things into existence. That God once desires relationship with you. With me. That's what the gospel communicates to us. That even while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God, the one who created all things and to whom all things belong, God was not satisfied with me being dead in my trespasses and sins. He made me alive that we might have a relationship. That's a phenomenal thought. Are we seeking him? Do we go to his word that is never failing? Never failing. Do we read it? Do we study it? Do we listen to it? And you may be saying, what does this have to do with... Reading God's word. It has everything to do with it. That's how he communicates to us. That's how we learn and know who he is. We tend to act like we're so short on time when it comes to reading God's word. But an article comes out about Buckeyes, national champions. I got I to read this. Shh, shh, I got to read this. Hours on Facebook scrolling and reading random posts. Here's my favorite from the last 24 hours from Facebook. My nose is so full of snot, my head is pounding. Like... And how much time will we give and give and give and give to that? But we're just like, oh, Lord, you know how busy I am, God. If I had more time, Lord, I would read your word. But it's just craziness with stuffy noses on Facebook and other things like that. We tend to just make excuses. but. But the reality is, just as we talked about last week and Jesus is referring to in chapter 16, where my treasure is, there my heart, and therefore my time will be also. And that's the key it's treasure. Too often we hear talking about reading God's word, and we hear that as legalism. It's not legalism, it's love. I give my heart and I give my time to my treasure. That's not all saying, I'm not at all saying that reading articles or even being on Facebook is inherently evil. I'm not saying that at all. But am I devoted to one and despising the other? Where my treasure is, there my heart is. Yesterday, we held our first wedding here in the building and prior to the ceremony starting, uh, I was asking some of the ladies that were helping, how's uh, Liz doing, the bride? How's the bride doing? And they said, she's doing great, but she's starting to cry. She's, you know, and I said, oh, what's going on? And, and they said, well, she's, she's reading Ty's letter right now. Ty's the groom. I was thinking through that this morning. Like, what if, Liz was pretty busy yesterday, right? It's busy to get Things in order to get actually down the aisle and all that. What if she, what if she got the letter from Ty, and she's just like, "You got to be kidding me." Like, this guy knows how busy I am. He knows that I've got all this stuff to do. I'll read it later. It's not even consideration, right? Why? Because her heart is tied to him. She loves him, and so she gets this letter, and everything else stops. And she reads and she weeps and she loves and she comes. Isn't that the way it should be for us? Those of us who treasure our Lord. He's written us this letter and it's not legalism to go to it. It's love. My heart is tied to you, Lord. I want to know you. Your word will never Fail, teach me, help me to see you so that I might come to you. We're going to go into a time where we take the Lord's Supper and I mentioned earlier Colossians 3 where Paul addresses covetousness being idolatry. He gives wisdom in that chapter. Beginning chapter 3, he says, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. One way that we do that, one way that we fight idolatry and sin is setting our mind on things above. And one of the ways we set our mind on things above is even as we take the Lord's Supper. That's what Jesus is saying in Luke 22. Luke 22, beginning with verse 19. He took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance. Of me. And so let's contemplate, remember, think about the good news of the gospel, the kingdom of God. Even as we sing together, let's prepare our hearts to think on things that are above. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and your grace, Lord. I love you. I thank you for your word. How could we thank you enough, Lord? Your word never fails and you've told us that you've given it to us so that we might have hope. That it's living and active. That you breathed it out through humans for us. And that it's profitable, it's good. And so we thank you and we praise you and we thank you for the words of Jesus. We thank you that through your scriptures we learn that our justification doesn't come from anything we do. It comes from what you've done. Jesus, you laid your life down on the cross. You were slain. You died. Your blood was shed. And so it's a joy that we remember that even now. We remember the body and we remember the blood of Jesus, Lord. We thank you. We praise you. We ask you for your help, Lord, that we would not live lives of hypocrisy. Lord, we confess to you we have so many idols, so many idols. Lord, help us by your Spirit to be aware of those, to confess those, to repent, and to continue to turn to you, to strive after you, Lord. This is good news, Lord. The gospel is good news. And we are grateful people. We praise you for it.